Man, take a look at this. Good morning, Austin Oaks Church family and friends. So good to see you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Brandon Ziski. If you're a guest with us this morning, we want to let you know our heartbeat here is to be simply about Jesus. And that's why we do all that we can to help people meet, know, and follow him. Um, we're going to be diving into a three-week mini-series called I'm Not Okay. It's basically the great cover-up because here's the deal. Every single one of us, myself included, every single one of us, 100% of everybody who's ever drawn breath on this earth is phenomenally gifted at covering up. All of us. You don't believe me? How many of you have been honest when someone's asked you how you're doing? 100% of the time. Okay, how many of you have lied? Right? If you're not raising your hand, you're lying. That's lying twice. That's not a good thing. But it's just like we do this all the time. And I know like, you know, for instance, when people, you have that conversation, hey, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. But the reality is, it's like we're not always. We cover up. And a lot of times we're like, well, I just don't want to get into it. Which again, is another way of covering up. But it's a lot of it is fear. We need to deal with these issues. We need to talk about the heart and the mind that can oftentimes and very much is ravaged by sin. We look at this season we've been in, in COVID season, in isolation. Like sin already isolates us. Now to be forced into further isolation just creates more and more and more anxiety within our hearts. We need to talk about some of these issues that deal with shame and guilt and anxiety and worry and stress and depression. Because this is not just an issue. Mental health is not just an issue that's for the professionals, for the, the counselors and the psychologists and the psychiatrists, which we very much need. But very much mental health is a spiritual issue. And the reason why I can say that is because it's caused by sin. Its sin is comprehensive and has broken and ravaged everything. So the church shouldn't be silent on this issue. Now I understand that to bring up this concept or this topic of mental health can be very divisive in a church, right? Because we're already culturally thinking and speaking, that term has been defined as something very clinical, right? Like if we're going to talk about mental health, we immediately start to think about like bipolar disorders, depression, and suicide, all that kind of stuff. But re reality is, Mental health is anything that deals with our emotional and psychological well-being. We're exhorted in Scripture to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul and all of our strength, which includes this very area. A lot of times when it comes to mental health, like we, people in the church can shame other people. For instance, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, like there's sometimes thoughts within the church of saying, well, you, you struggle with depression or anxiety there must be something wrong with your faith. You might not hear that explicitly, but it might be told like, you know, in another nice little way around the ballot. And then all of a sudden you feel shame to even bring it up, that you're struggling with such issues. All of a sudden it just creates isolation. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. It's the great cover-up. 
We can't treat this issue simply as applying Scripture as a supplemental remedy. We need to understand what God has to say and what God does in this issue and what, how God redeems and restores this issue. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to go all the way back to where everything unraveled, where everything fell apart in our story. What I want to talk to you this morning is ultimately our problem and struggle with vulnerability. And the way we're going to hear vulnerability is in the term of being naked. So get the giggles out now, move on, okay? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 25 through 31, or chapter 3, verse 1, I want you to notice specific words that the author uses that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, at the end of the culmination of everything that God created, this is like at the peak moment, and here's the verse that we hear about the emotional and psychological well-being of Adam and Eve. And the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. I find that absolutely fascinating that the Bible comes in and talks about that. How it betrays the fact that Adam and Eve and God's original good, very good created intention for humanity was to be naked, to be completely vulnerable, to be completely known. And they felt no shame. The thought never even crossed their mind. It's almost as if that this was how humanity is to be at its best to be completely vulnerable, to be completely open, to be completely loved when they are completely known. And so it could be said that the antithesis of this is shame. Where we look at our vulnerability, we look at our nakedness, and we are afraid of being exposed, and so we cover up and we hide. It's fascinating because what we see in the whole creation account is that God is a God of intention. He doesn't do things accidentally. It's not a haphazard. It's not a throwaway thought. He has done everything with great specificity and intention. And when he created and Adam and Eve, he created them in his image. Well, think about that for a moment. Our God is a triune God. Three in one. Perfect intimacy. Perfect unity. Fully known. Fully loved. All loving each other. All serving each other. And we were created in that image as if to suggest we too should experience life that way. But there's another voice that enters this story that completely distorts and subverts God's good intention. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent who we know was Satan, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And we're going to discover how the serpent undermines God's creation, God's intention. His desire and his intent and his schemes will always, always be to twist and distort the story of God's good creation. To cause a disruption between us and God and ultimately even with each other. And what we're going to discover is that he uses a really subtle ploy, a really subtle scheme to do that. And we call that shame. We call that shame. And you're going to see why I'm bringing that up. We don't see it like explicitly said. Satan used shame to mess up humanity. But you've got to look at things. There's a lot of implication. Why did it say that the emotional, psychological well-being of Adam and Eve was that they were naked and they felt no shame? And later on in the story, after their eyes were opened, they discovered, oh my goodness, I'm naked. And then they felt shame and then they hid. 
What was it? And how did Satan get to that place of stirring all of that stuff up inside of them? I want us to understand this. And this is why we do small groups. And this is why we have church. And this is why God created us to be in community with each other. Because the reality is God's good created intention is that for us to be vulnerable and connected to God and to others. Like right now, I know every single one of you, no one's one's an exception here. Every single one of you have things inside of you, in your life, in your mind, in your feelings, emotions, whatever, that you want people to know, but you're terrified. You're afraid to let someone else know. Or on the flip side, do you ever have that experience where you finally did share something, you brought something into the light, and the response you got was amazing love? And grace, and they're like, man, thank you for being so courageous. And all of a sudden you felt more courage to want to be vulnerable. And I also know there's some of you in that room that took that risk and got shut down. And you're going to guard it even more. We are at our best. We are at our best when we are vulnerable and connected to God and others. God's good creation. We were naked and without shame. Without shame. So it could be said that we're actually at our worst when we hide and are isolated from God and others. And isolation is sneaky. It doesn't mean you're just alone by yourself in a closet. You can feel isolated even right now with a lot of people around you. You can feel isolated in your marriage. You can feel isolated in any context because of shame. So I want to define shame real quick because I know shame and guilt gets, gets confused oftentimes. Guilt is related to what you do. Guilt is a result of like, you know, your conscience like convicting you. Guilt is what you do. It's objective. In fact, guilt can be used as a good thing and a bad thing. And a lot of times we just use guilt as like carte blanche. It's always bad. Guilt is bad. Guilt is bad. But here's why I'm saying it can be used as a good thing. We see it in in, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 10 where Paul's talking about godly grief or the word sorrow. And the definition of this word really speaks of pain of mind or spirit. It talks about like that conviction that comes from a guilty conscience. And Paul is telling us that there's actually godly guilt that produces repentance. It leads you like, okay, I did something wrong. Now what do I do with it? I can either move towards repentance and salvation. I love this word, without regret. Like I'm coming into the light and I'm going to get forgiven and cleansed. And yet there's also worldly grief or guilt that produces death. That's the stuff we hide. And if we're not careful within that, that's where we start to muddy the lines because now shame takes a step further and says, okay, not only guilt is about what you've done, shame now says, I'm a bad person. I did something wrong. Now shame would go, I am wrong. I'm a bad person. Now, like, I know um, in our household, one of the things that, like, breaks our heart is, like, if we have to, like, discipline one of our kids, and I'm thinking of one specifically, like, he would be like, oh, I'm such a bad boy. And you're like, where do you get that from? And I pray that mom and dad aren't reinforcing that and making you think that you're a bad boy, but something inside of him, in the brokenness of his humanity, he's feeling shame and he's telling himself, I'm a bad boy, which mom and dad now have to say, no, you're not a bad boy. You did something wrong. Now let's deal with it. You're broken and there's sin, but you're not a bad 
person, shame, will always take that leap into, I'm bad, I'm worthless, I'm unacceptable, I can never be loved. If anybody knew who I was, and anybody knew what I thought, if anybody knew what I did, if anybody knew this, they wouldn't love me. In God's original intent, we were fully known and fully loved. That's being naked without shame. But because of sin, we have all become convinced that the best we can get out of life is to be loved and yet not be fully known. Because if someone were to fully know me, then I wouldn't be loved. That's shame. And shame is so subtle. You don't even realize it. You don't even realize the mechanism of shame as it's happening. That's why I do believe Scripture says that when it says we're to have our minds renewed, it's not just simply so that we got good doctrine. It's about how we can hear truth and operate out of God's narrative instead of the false narratives that we create and we tell ourselves. And here's how Satan goes about this. I love how he's described. Actually, I hate how he's described, but it's very revealing of how he acts. He's crafty. Jerk. I wish he wasn't crafty. I wish he was obvious. How much easier would that be? Like, oh, this one's Satan. I know that one. But he's like, he's crafty. Like, he's subtle. He's devious. He just slightly alters the truth just a little bit. He likes to plant seeds of doubt in your mind just to get you stirring. He said to the woman, to the woman, did God actually say? Like, there is so much implication to this seed of doubt right there. Like never once did Eve ever question anything about God till this moment. Like she completely, she knew with peace that God fully loved me, everything is good, but then Satan comes and says, did God really say? Now she's like, I, I don't know. Starts planting some doubt. And all of a sudden she begins, like, yes, it's not explicitly said there, but you've got to understand, like, what are your thought processes when doubt enters your mind? Does God really love me? Like, what do you start to do? You start to feel some emotional distress, and you start to analyze and judge God from a, diff- from a distance, and you start to do it on your own logic and reasoning in isolation. We do that with other people. Does she love me? Does he love me? Would this happen? Would that happen? And that doubt causes us to start to think and feel the stress. So of course, she's feeling that in this moment. Did God really say, what are you talking about? What do you mean? Did I, did I miss something? Like you you got to imagine that. But not only that, he gets her to start to doubt the history of what was really said. She becomes a revisionist real quick. Did God really say you should not eat any tree or any... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. He's getting her to think in isolation. And she's feeling the stress that doubt is stirring up. And all he's doing, he's not actually interested in getting the facts. Like, like you would assume that the right thing to do would be for Eve to go, hey, let's go, let's go talk to God. Let's go ask God what he actually said. Let's really find out. The serpent has no interest in that. He already knows. He's not about fact-finding. He's just trying to get her to doubt. In fact, where is the, the bum, Adam, who's sitting next to her, who actually heard this? He's just being a turd and letting it all happen. Sorry. Once a youth pastor, always a youth pastor. 
Like you would think they would do this, like, let's talk this doubt out in community. God, what did you really say? He's just getting her to be self-referential, to decide these things. But all of that doubt is causing stress and turmoil inside of her. And without even realizing it, she distorts the story. She creates her own narrative. Look at this in verse 2, verse 3. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said... But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Now, neither shall you touch it. That wasn't part of it, lest you die. And I asked myself the question, why did she offer a different account than what God actually gave? Something has to be stirring inside of her. Doubt creates stress and anxiety. Doubt reminds us, friends, does it not? Doubt reminds us that we are not in control. I doubt the Chicago Bears will be good this year. I can't control that. But doubt works the same in every circumstance. Like if I had a loved one who was sick, like the doubt on that, will he ever get well or will she ever get well? I have no control over that. It reminds us that we don't have control and that creates stress. And if we're not careful, we will deviate from the truth and we will create our own narratives just to find some sort of like calm to the distress. Did God really say? You got to imagine all of the things that had to have been going through her mind. What did he really mean? What really are his intentions towards me? Does he really love me? Why is he withholding? Why would he do this? And where is he right now? Where is God? You think he would come in and get my back here? Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. He's lying to you. For God knows, subtle twist, he's withholding. He's not who you thought he was. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, which is so ridiculous because it's like to be God means you're not dependent upon anyone or anything, but basically saying you will be like God once you have your eyes open, but you need something else to open up your eyes so you're really not going to be God. Gotcha. The serpent realizes that she's feeling the emotions caused by doubt, and he offers her a rendition of truth served up on a silver platter. Listen, this is what's really going on. You're not going to die. That sin, that temptation, it's not really going to harm you that much. God really doesn't mean it. He was being dramatic. It's not truly true. He's just withholding from you. Okay? He doesn't want you to have what he has. He doesn't want you to be who he is, which actually is a good thing because we weren't created to be God, but he's using it as a distortion of saying he's withholding from you. This could be yours. And she's like, yeah. Now, given the fact that God prohibited Adam and Eve from eating the fruit of the tree implies a few things that Satan is using in this doubt scenario. He's trying to get Eve to think and imply that God doesn't want her or Adam to be like him, that God doesn't want them to have what he has. He doesn't really want to be as close as they got them to think that God wants them to do, further implying that you're not as important as you think you are. Because if you were as important as you think you are, God would allow you to be like him. But because you're not enough, he's withholding from you. All of that is stirring inside of her. 
Shame is at work. And how do I know that? Because shame always does its work in isolation. Always. She could have talked to Adam. She could have asked God. But she's working it out herself in the emotional distress of that moment. She's redefining the truth. She begins to consider and analyze God from a distance as she rewrites her own narrative. Oh, friends, how we do this all the time, don't we? We analyze and judge in the privacy of our own minds all the time. How many of you have judged me within the last 10 minutes? What will my friend think? What will my enemy think? What about my kids, my wife? What are they really thinking and feeling? What if they really did this? What if they really saw this? What if they really knew this? And we start to think and we think and we think and we create our own stories. And 99% of the time, they're not even true or logical. That's how shame is. Why would Eve ever want anything that Satan is offering her? She was fully known and fully loved. She was without shame, completely known and naked. It was perfect. It was very good. She assumed she was loved and never had to wonder about it until now, until someone dropped the seed of doubt to interrupt the relationship. She was subtly accused of not being enough. Shame caused her then to replace the greatest relationship that she could have ever had for some stinking fruit. And that moment ruptured the relationship between her and God, but also it ruptured the relationship between her and Adam and her and herself. Yeah, her eyes were opened. Now she knows or she decides what is good and what is wrong. What is evil? She became self-referential. She's playing God by determining right and wrong. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Fascinating. That's telling us they felt shame. It's the first thing we get in Scripture that came as a result of this sin. They realized they were naked. And what did they do? The moment they realized that they were naked, they covered up. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Forgive me for my adolescence, but I have to imagine what that conversation had to have been like between Adam and Eve. Like in that moment, like did Eve just look at Adam and be like, you gained a few pounds. Like, sorry. Stop judging. Like, like, honestly, like, how did that, like, work? Because all of a sudden they're like, this is, this is wrong, but it's been right the whole time up to this moment. And they're like, this is not okay. I don't want you to see me anymore. Like, they're controlling their vulnerability. They're covering up. Like, before there was no problem with being fully known, no problem with being naked, none. But now, what do they do? These are coping mechanisms. And that's what we do to cover up our vulnerability, our nakedness. We develop all of these coping mechanisms to keep people away so they don't really know the real me, but yet I really want you to know the real me, but I really don't want you to really know me. And that causes all sorts of mental stress in our lives. Think about it.
Why do you clean your house or your apartment when you know you're going to have guests over? Yes, yes, you want to be a good host. But is it because you just don't want people to really know how you live the rest of your life? Right? That's a cover-up. Why do you do that? Shame. I don't really want them to know. Like when you try to court or pursue someone that you want to be in a relationship with. Like I remember that when I was trying to date my wife. I was like, man, I got to work out a little bit more. Why? Because I don't think I'm attractive enough, as funny as that is. But if I get a little bit better, yeah, someone got that. As long as I get a little bit better, and I look a little bit better, then I'll be worth something. Why do you do what you do? These are all coping mechanisms of the shame we feel because we don't want someone to really know me. Because if you really knew me, if you knew the core, if I was fully vulnerable before you, you would be so unimpressed. You'd be so unwowed. You'd be like, so we do all sorts of things to cover up. And friends, I'm telling you, that's exhausting. Yes, it's so exhausting to keep up with appearances. And sometimes we get ourselves in so much trouble with it that we built this web of lies to tell this false narrative. And that creates anxiety, that creates stress, that creates panic, and that can also cause depression that messes with all of the chemicals in our brain. That very much can happen. Because we're trying to keep on covering up with fig leaves. Because now we think that being naked and being vulnerable is wrong. We feel the trauma of that, to be exposed of that. We don't like it. So we settle with being loved, but yet what we really want is to be fully known and loved. But we don't believe that we could be loved if we were fully known. And praise God that he reenters the story. Praise God that he didn't leave Adam and Eve and their pathetic fig leaves. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I, I, I just love that picture. Like in my flesh, I wanted to like imagine like, <laughs> I'm such a bad parent. Like when I knew my kids did something wrong, I want them to know I'm coming. Anybody? Like I want them to know I'm mad before I get to them. Okay. Like I would imagine like God doing that in this moment. But he comes in the cool of the day. Like, and I love how he approaches it. He's looking for them. But like, it's fascinating that Adam and Eve, when they heard that God was coming, what did they do? They've never, ever, ever done this before. Until they decided that being naked was wrong, now the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God in his grace and his gentleness and his mercy called out to the man and said to him, where are you? It's not like God doesn't know. He's wanting them to look in. And we're going to see how that plays out. But I want you to hear this. Shame will always tell you to cover up and hide. It will always tell you to cover up and hide. Always. 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 Hiding is the natural response to shame. We hide from everyone. How are you doing? I'm good liar. You're hiding. And we all know it. And we let it slide. We hide from ourselves. 
Ammon and Eve. They hid from themselves too in this, as we're going to see a little bit later as they make excuses. Oh, it was Eve. She was the woman you did. It was her fault. And Eve's like, no, it was the serpent. It was his fault. That's all them casting blame. That's not only that they're hiding from themselves. But the greatest travesty is that they're hiding from God. They had no reason to hide from God before. But now that they decided that they're not enough and that their nakedness is wrong, they hide. When you choose, let me rephrase that. So often, do we not anticipate that if people knew us, we would be shamed? Like we already, we've already set that up in our minds. Like if somebody knew, I'd be shamed. And so we refuse vulnerability or we control that vulnerability. We do it all the time. I want to make a confession to you. Super embarrassing. Okay? You don't judge me though. Agreed? Okay. If you don't agree, I'm going to tell you. And it's your loss. So don't judge me. I was, I was really like, okay, I was like, man, how subtle is shame? Like, and I was thinking, like, shame's got to be like these massive issues, right? But I was thinking about this, and this is why I'm wearing this today, because this is a live example. So as I preach, okay, don't judge me. I'm so embarrassed. I actually don't even want to do this. <sighs> I'm going for it because I know you're the same way. Okay. <laughs> Like, I, I actually think that my physical appearance is what helps me be, be a better preacher. So if I feel like I'm having a fat day, what are you laughing at? <laughs> like, honestly, I, I woke up this morning, I was like, I feel chubby. And I immediately went, what will I wear to cover that up? Oh, a sport coat. And I went, oh, that'll preach. <laughs> But it's like, do we not do that? Like, like I'm, not, I'm not pointing fingers, but like, because I threw myself under the bus, like, like makeup. Well, why do you got to wear makeup? Well, because you've convinced yourself you're not attractive enough without it. Because if people really saw you with your face unmade, how about everything? Else? Like, think about it. Why do you wear what you wear? Because you don't like your appearance. Well, who told you it wasn't good? I did. Like all of these things, like why are we, who, why are you so private? Oh, because I'm an introvert. Yeah, you might be an introvert, but why are you so private? Stop it. Why do you have this tough exterior on you? Why do you have anger problems? Why are you bitter? Why are you resentful? Why do you have this obsessive drive to be attractive? Why do you struggle with perfectionism? Why not be in a small group? Because you're too busy, liar. I'm meddling. This is what shame does. And God comes in his grace and he woozes out, where are you? Where are you, Adam? And I love the question. I love the dialogue that we see here. In verse 10, Adam responds, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Why was he afraid? Because I ate the fruit. That's not what he says. This is fascinating. Let's not underplay the significance of how shame operates and causes us to sin. When I heard you coming, I was afraid because I was naked. And I can imagine God going, Adam, you've been naked your whole life. Why is it bad now? 
This is all a rhetorical device where Adam and Eve can only answer, because I decided it was wrong. God asks one of the most insightful questions right here, who told you you were naked? Who told you that? Like who told you? Because they started to judge that being naked, being vulnerable, and being fully known is wrong. And it's torture, and it's scary, it's risky. If I do that, I'm putting myself up for hurt and disappointment. So no, because quite frankly, shame tells us that if people really knew us, they would leave us, and I would be alone my whole life. Isn't that why you don't share things? It's because you don't want people to leave you. We were created for a relationship with God and with each other. And as this story continues, we see the redemption of God at play. We see a foreshadow in verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God had to kill animals shedding of blood to cover them. It was almost as if God was saying, you can't do this on your own. You need me to cover you up. Friends, listen to me. God is the God who covers your shame by covering your sin. God is the God who covers your shame by covering your sin. This picture of God covering us in our sin, in our nakedness, is all over Scripture. For instance, Ezekiel 16, you'll see this picture of God seeing Israel cast out as a female baby wallowing in her blood. And as she grew up, he makes a covenant with her and he clothes her. We see it in Zechariah 3 when Satan is accusing the high priest and saying, he's wrong, he's bad, he's this. And God's like, is he not one I've redeemed to pluck from the fire? Also, he tells the angels, because he's dressed in filthy rags, clothe him. We see it with Hosea. We see it in Luke 15 in the prodigal son that we talked about last week. When his young son came home, the father did what? Put Put the best robe on him. We are told that we are clothed with the garments of salvation, the atonement of Jesus, his righteousness imputed, given to us. We are covered with his righteousness. Shame wants us to be convinced that we need to control the circumstance. Don't let God control you. If you are naked, he will expose you and he will judge you and he will accuse you. So will other people. But what God says is, where are you? Come into the light as I am in the light. Come out of the darkness and into the light. Romans 4, 7 says that blessed are those whose deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Because of the cross and because of Resurrection Sunday and because of his ascension, we can finally experience what it means to be fully known and fully loved because the only eyes that matter in this life are the eyes of God. That is what it means to be free. Because of the cross, because of the atonement, God loves you in spite of fully knowing you. So you have no reason to fear what other people would say or think. So now we are encouraged and prompted by the Spirit to move into this type of freedom. I love Colossians chapter 3. 
Paul writes, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above. Anywhere, like, stop telling yourself your own version of the story. Look to him. Look at his heart. Look at the cross. Look at the grave. Look at what he's done. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things here, for you have died, and now your life is hidden with Christ in God. He's my covering. You're not my covering. I don't care if you think I'm fat or not. My shame wants me to think that. I don't care if you think I'm a good preacher or not because that has no value on me because I am covered, I'm hid in Christ and he's my life. What people think of me is in my life. And the only way back to the tree of life, as we see in this Genesis account, is there's angels there swinging the sword back and forth so nobody can get in, is to go under the sword. And guess who went under the sword for us? Jesus. So friends, in order for us to overcome shame, in order for us to overcome shame, we need to pursue shame. The very thing that we're terrified of is the very thing we need to move towards. And what do I mean by that? Stop hiding. Stop covering up. Choose vulnerability. Come into the light. Let the light of Christ shine on you. Take your shame to God. Don't strive to be perfect. Don't judge yourself. We have a scripture verse in Corinthians that says that Paul's like, I don't even judge myself. That's for God. Don't do that. Satan just wants to interrupt your relationship with God and with each other. And the more you hide, the more you cover up, the more disrupted these relationships are. My journey out of shame truly started with seeing a counselor. And I was ashamed at first. A pastor seeing a counselor? What's wrong with that pastor? I'm a sinner. I'm broken. Things happened in my past. I'm dealing with it. I'm processing it. I believe the lies that I'm not good enough, that my value's tied up in what I do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and that people really knew me, they would leave me. But I had to meet with a counselor who knew God's word and knew the heart of Christ and spoke truth over me. Would hear when I'm running on the hamster wheel and believing the lies and rehearsing the lies, he would interject and speak truth. And that gave me the confidence and the courage to go, oh my goodness, if this is how God sees me, Maybe I can have the courage now to enter into community and share some of those things. And I've learned that vulnerability isn't a moment, isn't just something you do once or here and there. It's truly how we are to live. God's original created intent was to be naked and without shame, to be known. Friends, this tells me that we need community because it's within community where we're able to see and experience the love of Christ through how we love one another. When you don't feel accepted, a lot of times it's hard for yourself to tell yourself the truth because you're telling yourself a twisted version of the truth. What we need is other people to remind us as well that Christ accepted us, that God loves us. 
When we feel that we are our past, we need other people to remind us like, no, you are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. When we feel unworthy, we need one another to remind us that we are a masterpiece created in God's image. So let me speak candidly. If you're not in a small group and your top excuse is because you're too busy or you're an introvert, stop it. You don't know the best version of your life yet until you're willing to come into community. Now also for those who are originally in small groups, you've been in a small group, I gotta ask this question as well. Is your small group safe for people to be open and vulnerable? Can you confess sins without shame and judgment? Or is it just full of pretense? God gave us the body of Christ. Last, to help us deal with shame, friends, you have to surrender your shame to the one who can cover it. And that's why I love the song that Seth just played, Son of Suffering. I want you to think about the cross for a moment. Jesus faced shame so he could take our shame. Adam and Eve were found to be naked and they felt shame. When Jesus hung on the cross, we failed to remember one specific detail about that. And I'm not being crass, this is just reality. When Jesus hung on the cross, he hung on the cross naked, open, exposed for the whole world to see, to be mocked and ridiculed. Friends, my brain can't comprehend this, that the Son of God would hang naked on the cross, accused as a criminal, the only innocent one. Crucifixion was the greatest shame you could experience. He was spit on over and over and abandoned. Like, imagine all of the shame that was there. Adam and Eve, when their eyes were open, they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. Jesus would hang on the cross for the world to see and feel no shame. Hebrews tells us in chapter 12 that he scorned the shame because he knew that he'd be sitting at the right hand of the Father. He knew what would happen. He knew that this would open up an opportunity for God to restore humanity, to create an opportunity for reconciliation for us to finally again have the opportunity to be fully known and fully loved. He did that for you. So I ask you the question as we conclude, where are you? Where are you? Where are you hiding? What are you covering up? What are you afraid of? Stop trying to control everything. Surrender to the one who knows you and loves you, who gave you the, <laughs> one of the best promises that nothing, absolutely nothing could separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your gentleness and your kindness 
that leads to repentance. I thank you, Lord, that you know that we're just dust, that we think we know better, that we think we know the difference between right and wrong, that we become self-referential, we like to play God, we like to control things. You know that we long to be known, but yet we're terrified of being known. And that causes us to sin. And sin, and sin. It causes us to hide from you. It causes us to hide from one another and even ourselves. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And his first tactic is just to sow seeds of doubt. Steal it. Steal the truth. He really doesn't need to do much more than that because we are well capable of doing the destroying. So Lord, would you lead us not in temptation? Deliver us from the evil one. We're not unaware of our enemy's schemes and tactics. We don't pass cast the blame away. We own it. We have rebelled. We, we have decided that to be known is wrong. We have chosen to hide from you. So Holy Spirit, I pray that as we conclude, you would stir in the hearts of your children that if even now, even now, we need to move out of the darkness and into the light, that we would do that. We wouldn't wait. Because we also know that sometimes when we wait, it gets stolen. So Lord, if there's people who need to make a decision to come into the light, just the light of salvation, to be covered by the blood of your son Jesus because of our sin and our act of rebellion, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, I pray for our brothers and sisters who are stuck in this cycle, vicious cycle of shame that's causing them all sorts of coping things that's, that's sinful and it's ruining relationships, God, that today would be the day they would confess that and move into the light. Lord, I pray that you would move people, stir people, encourage people this morning into community to do this life together, to share with one another and to realize that it's safe when people who love Jesus, because we all realize that we're all sinners, we're all wretched, we all need salvation, we all need God's grace, we all need God's mercy. Lord, may this be a place, may this be a church, a community where we don't have to fake it. Where we can be real and allow your grace and your spirit to move and heal. We pray this in Christ's name.